Welcome to another session of Ocean Waves. My name is Eric Foolish. Ironically, I'm the air cargo editor, but I fancy myself a supply chain reporter that can write about any mode. So don't worry, we'll survive this. Plus, I've got a great guest who will educate me about ocean freight economics and the mega trends that are impacting the market. Walter Kempsey's is the managing partner of the Kempsey's Group and advises a lot of port authorities, terminal operators, industrial developers, investors, and transportation businesses about operational and financial strategies, infrastructure, investments, demand forecasting, and global trade. He previously led JLL's ports, airports, and global infrastructure practice, and before that was chief economist for Moffitt Nickel, and now he's a, a supply chain advisor on a committee to the U.S. Uh, Department of Commerce. The thing I like about Walter is that he always has some insight that gets ignored by the expert consensus. So he's thought-provoking and very informative. Walter, thank you for joining me to discuss global supply chain issues. It's great to be here, Eric. Good to see you, even if just virtually. Right. Um, the pandemic has uh, caused a lot of disruption in our personal lives, but also with supply chains. Uh, there's stress like never before. Um, container yards are clogged. Truck and rail capacity is overwhelmed. Ships are backing up out to sea at the ports. Retailers have empty shelves. And automakers uh, have had to idle plants because they can't get parts. Briefly, Walter, can you tell us how, do you, how did we get into this transportation chaos and, and when do you see some normalcy returning? Okay, great. Um, I have a slide up here. And the, the data you see in the top chart, this is uh, not seasonally adjusted retailers' sales. So there's a lot of talk all the time in the news about retail sales. In, in my world, in my freight movement world, I could care less about retail sales. I care about retailers' sales. The retailers are the ones who import a lot of the goods that come through our ports, particularly in containers. And so this top chart is uh, not seasonally adjusted uh, retailer sales. Um, you can see there's a, a spike in every year that happens in December. Uh, there are holidays in December. People buy a lot of gifts, especially at the last minute, something I would not advise trying to do this year. But um, what we see here is that we had the traditional spike in 2020, and then we had the drop that normally comes afterwards. You get out of the holiday season, but we didn't. What happens is starting in, in February, the retailer sales shoot back up again. And a lot of this spiking in retailer sales is related to the um, fiscal stimuli that were passed both in 2020 and 2021. And basically, we have been at peak retail sales uh, ever since, uh, I would say, last year, June. So a lot of that, a lot of those sales are served by importing goods and containers and into the main ports. And uh, in order to meet this demand from consumers, uh, a lot more has been shipped to the U.S. from all over the world, but in particular from Northeast Asia. And I think it's helpful to take a look that there's, there's more to the problem. It's not just that we had a 20% jump in the level of retail sales in between December 2019 and, and, and you know seven or eight months later, but when we look at the deseasonalized data, so or, or the seasonally adjusted data, so this red line, sorry, this blue line you see here are the retail retailers' sales. So it's nice and cleaned up from all of that noisy month-to-month -month thing. And then this red line is the inventories. 
And the inventory to sales ratio is this black line, which is you know uh, graphed against the right-hand side. So we look at the inventory to sales ratio, and it was bouncing around between $1.45 to $1.50 of inventories sitting on store shelves and back rooms and warehouses to support $1 of sales. Uh, it used to be lower, but with e-commerce, you have to hold more inventory in more places if you're going to compete with bricks and mortar. So uh, the average for the retailer has for the retailers has increased. So 145 to $1.50 of inventory, we get to, uh, to uh, March and April last year. Everybody's staying home. Nobody's buying anything. The inventory spike up. The inventory sales ratio spikes up. And then people go crazy and start buying a lot. That's this shift in the blue line. And the inventories fell to levels, the inventory sales level, inventory to sales ratio fell to a level uh, that we've never seen. And the key thing here is the inventories. They fell as people were buying a lot and we couldn't get stuff into the U.S. because China hadn't completely reopened. Japan hadn't completely reopened. And the retailers have not, at least until July, were not able to get their inventories back to where they needed to be. So they're currently sitting somewhere around 2016 levels, at least in July they were. And uh, the sales are at a level that in 2019, you might not have forecast those sales reaching until maybe 2030. Definitely not, not before 2027. That's fascinating. So that's the demand side. And then, of course, we've had all the dislocation, um, you know, the challenges that have uh, that's overwhelmed the, the infrastructure on the supply side between the ocean and the ports, right? So, yeah, that is the absolute source and foundation of what happened. So, so basically, when you look at the level of containers coming in through some of the main ports like uh, Los Angeles, Long Beach, New York, Savannah, their volumes are, are, are running each month 20% higher than they were at any other time. And what happens is when those ships start getting anchored at, at, at the ports, they as soon as they finally get a, a berth to get into, they dump everything and often void the second port of call, third port of call stops, and head back to Asia because they've been sitting there you know, a week or more in places like Southern California. So the problem starts to spread more through, through the system because if you're an importer in Oakland, now you've got to go get your stuff and dray it up from LA. Good luck with that because... If you do that, you're pulling a chassis out of the Los Angeles chassis pool, and uh, they really need those chassis. So, uh, and then the exporters have to dray their stuff down to LA to find an empty box and get it loaded at the port. And right now, with all of the shortages of truck drivers that we see, of railroad workers, port workers, the it's very difficult for the importers to get their stuff away from a port city and into the inland areas. So, here's an interesting, you know, quiz, or, you know, puzzle. Retailers' uh, inventories, as you just saw, are at 2016 levels, at least in July they were. And the industrial real estate, the distribution centers and the warehouses around the ports are at vacancy rates in, in the main ones that are effectively zero. I know some real estate people reported as being 1% or 2%, but the reality is, is if you take a look at all those empty buildings where people have signed leases but not moved in yet and take that out of the vacancy calculation, you're pretty close to zero. It's so bad that many of the importers have to keep stuff in containers sitting on chassis at their warehouses, again, depriving the chassis pool. And a lot of them are just leaving their boxes at the port 
because they literally have no place to go. And I saw somebody say, oh, that's because they don't want to pay rent for a new warehouse. What new warehouse? What warehouse? You go to LA, you go to the Inland Empire, you go to Savannah, you go to New York, just effectively 0% vacancy. It's not that they, they don't want to pay for, you know, to lease additional physical space. There is none to be had. So um, that's the, and, and the weird thing is when you look inland, the warehouses and distribution centers aren't full. So we're really clogged at the ports. Yeah, right. And, um, and, and let's, so let's take that. So then, and then retailers, uh, as we've been talking about, and I've written about, they're experiencing, you know, a lot of rising uh, freight transportation costs because the ocean rates, uh, the ocean carriers are so constrained that their prices are up and you have to pay a premium to get on the vessel. So rates are up six, seven, eight times or more from uh, a year ago or, or normal times. Trucking rates are uh, very high, railroad. And so those costs are being borne a lot by the, the retailers. And some of that's going to be passed on to the consumer. So talk to us a little bit about where you see inflation, uh, freight transportation inflation and, and consumer uh, CPI inflation. And also um, a couple other things are coming down the pipeline. The Evergrande property developer in China that might default um, and also the U.S., um, you know, the U.S. Treasury uh, or, not, or debt ceiling, if Congress doesn't raise the debt ceiling in time um, in the next few weeks, you know, what could those things, uh, how could those things affect the economy and uh, goods purchasing? Yeah, so let's start with the uh, with the inflation story. I'm not going to load the, the slide, but I have a chart in that deck uh, that plots the consumer price index uh, for urban areas, and it excludes food and energy because that's what we really watch. You know, food and energy go all over the place. So that's it's running. It, it got up to five, a little over five percent uh, in in July, and then the August reading was uh, just a, was below that by a, by maybe 20, 30 basis points. So the CPI seems to be have flattened out a little bit, but the uh, PPI, the Purchasers Price Index, and that's basically for the commodities that they buy, uh, that is up a little over 20% from a year ago. So they're getting they're getting really tight on the commodities. Labor wage rates, you know, the official reported rate that we hear for the country as a whole is something like four to five percent wage growth. But uh, when you talk to people who operate distribution centers and transportation, it, the wage growth isn't in the single digits. It's well in the double digits, right? Everybody out there trying to outbid each other. Minimum wage is practically twenty one dollars now in the country, uh, simply because of the labor shortages. And I think the great resignation, as many people have put it, is not going to stop anytime soon. And it's not because of the unemployment pay. It's just that, um, you know, I think there's been a great rethink uh, about, you know, quality of life and the way, you're, the way you live. And uh, it's, this has been brewing for quite some time. Um, so what happens to inflation? Well, the wages are up. Commodities are up. You mentioned the transportation costs are up. Uh, so the the real cost index for for producers or for people who sell things is a much is a steep double digit increase, and I don't think we've seen it in the retail prices yet because it's still everybody's still in that you know old ten year old mentality. We just went through an economic debt crisis. Will you know will will we ever go from being a 
a, a price minus return to a cost plus you know company again. And what I mean by that is uh, when when the economy is weak, there's two states to the economy. When it's weak, somebody says, "Can you do this for this amount of money?" So you take some of that money out to give it to your capital providers because we have to worship the guys in Wall Street, and then whatever is left. We see if we can figure out how to do it for that given budget. And we lived that way from 2008 until 2016, and then things started to change. And now we are clearly in a cost-plus environment. You want something? Fine. It's going to cost me 100 to do it, and I want a 20% markup. Oh, that's steep. Then go someplace else. I got plenty to do. So that's the world that we're shifting in. Now, is that when we see higher inflation? Yes, we do. However... Uh, despite all of the commentaries about we're going to repatriate manufacturing, we're going to repatriate all of this stuff, I still see more outsourcing going on than, uh, than I see uh, you know, repatriation. Where we do see repatriation is in industries where the, um, uh, the U.S. government has chosen to subsidize the, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the manufacturing because in general, and, and I do talk to a lot of supply chain managers, it is more expensive to manufacture in the U.S. than in other places. Unless you're talking about, you have a, a need for very cheap raw materials like plastic resins, where we're the cheapest source in the world. Or if you need, you know, very cheap food, that's us again. So for some cases where the raw material is cheap enough and you can minimize your use of labor, it might work. But right now for things like pharmaceuticals and technology, you just got to subsidize it. So that's what I see happening there. Um, and there's this, so, so overall, what happens to inflation? As long as the stuff consumers are spending a lot of money on continues to outsource to cheap labor places, there's a downdraft on inflation. So the general view is we'll see higher inflation for a while, but sometime between now and the middle of next year, it's likely to really roll off. So I'm not that worried about it. We have structural deflation that we're fighting uh, almost all the time. But right. Switch- yeah. So, and are you worried? So then other things you potentially could be worried about this, uh, the, the U.S. debt ceiling uh, debate, if the Congress, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, they'll renew that. But i um, wondering if that's, uh, you know, scaring the markets at all or consumers. And then if, and then also the uh, Evergrande property developer, a huge property developer in China that's on the verge of collapsing and uh, going into default. Yeah. So let's talk about the debt ceiling. Um, I don't like how much debt we have. We have increased our debt in the last 12, 15 months by, by trillions of dollars. Uh, that's that. I just find that uncomfortable. And the way we're financing it is the Federal Reserve is, is monetizing the debt. They're buying the debt. So this is going to come to an end, according to the Fed. They're just watching the economy, and they're going to reverse doing that as soon as they can. Um, but the monkey wrench in the whole process is you know, will we have a budget? Will we will we actually agree in the debt ceiling? And uh, I think that if we have disruptive behavior and we don't get everything agreed, you know, on schedule, uh, that this will backfire on anybody who is making the chaos more chaotic. Uh, I don't think this is a, a, a winner strategy at all. Having said that, and this goes for both parties, I'm not pointing my finger at, at, at one or the other. Just I think, you know, this is a time to come to agreement do it on schedule, and uh, you know, and let's make sure we get things prioritized, like the infrastructure. We really need it, but um, suppose the the we don't come to agreement, and that kind of puts a dent in the economy, and you know, you see people getting furloughed, etc. 
like we did last time. Um, that wouldn't be bad for the for the port industry from for marine freight because it gives them time to tidy things up. And you know, when you look at the ports, you know, like like Los Angeles, Long Beach, Savannah, New York, uh, several others. I'm not just you know trying to single anybody out, but they have been handling peak level volumes since roughly August of last year. You know, these port the port capacity is designed to be able to get through the peak, but you don't want to operate 12 months long at peak capacity. And in some cases, probably beyond peak dis, uh, operating capacity. So, um, you know, if a little disruption from the debt ceiling thing, if that quiets down the consumer, if they'll stay home and stop wasting their money on junk they don't need, uh, that would be very helpful. I think, you know, we would all breathe a little bit better. So uh, now what can the Evergrande thing do? Um, look, you know, Chinese government says they're not going to intervene. They are, but they are pressuring a lot of companies to step in and buy assets from Evergrande. Um, and we know that Evergrande has uh, got about, according to the financial uh, numbers uh, that uh, Wall Street tracks, they've got overall liabilities of $300 billion. Uh, Lehman, by comparison, was $600 billion. But, you know, the Chinese economy is much smaller than the U.S. It's a very fragile economy. It doesn't have healthy market mechanisms to... to uh, you know, be able to work with many things because a lot of it is rigid and state controlled. Uh, so if you just let things happen, I think it would be quite a mess. But I believe the Chinese government is out there asking the state-owned enterprises and other developers to, to you know, take pieces of, uh, of Evergrande's portfolio. Uh, there's a very large uh, paint company in, in China that has already been paid or had their, their, their bills settled by receiving three apartment buildings, you know, from Evergrande. So there is a way for this to, for Evergrande to be unwound without creating too much chaos. Um, and, and I think that's what the Chinese government is doing. Evergrande is not news, right? The Wall Street and the other folks knew that they were too heavily indebted for quite some time, but the time to really start unwinding before something hits the fan is, is, was two weeks ago, and that's what they've been doing. So I'm not I'm not as concerned about that. Right. Let's uh, let's go back to quickly to uh, some of the ocean uh, an ocean uh, issue. I, I know that um, you know the ocean carriers don't have, as we've discussed, don't have any free vessels available. They're chock a block used up. Um, the containers are used up, um, and but they've got some big orders in the shipyards that are, and the ships are supposed to come online. I think in 2023, I believe. So there will be new capacity coming into the system. It just won't help us right now. But I think you recently made a prediction that carriers may not uh, carry through with all those orders. Can you uh, explain what you meant? Yeah, I think the the volume of containers that's flowing through. Uh, the system to support those, uh, the high level of container volumes are there to support the very high level of retailer sales. And uh, I, I, I have noticed, so it all goes back to the U.S. consumer. The U.S. is at the center of this of this global mess because nobody out there put, you know, $4 trillion. That's equivalent to the GDP of pretty much the bottom 80 or, or, or 90 countries in the list of all the countries of the world. Okay, that's a lot of money. So. You, you, we are the center of, of, the, of the chaos. And you saw that chart that I just showed you, right? Look at that 20% jump in retailer sales. This is going to flatten out and probably drop as we continue to return to normal or to some kind of normal. And um, 
And when you've lost all of that pressure and you look at your, your, your fleet and your, your containers, you're going to say, you know what? We don't need that many. So we were right-sized to the previous level of volume flow. And what happens is the other piece of this chaos is uh, the supply side crisis. You know, one week, one country is open. And I have this in a slide deck, too. You can share this if you want. So, you know, one week, one country is open and the other is closed. And then the next week, the closed country opens and the other one, uh, you know, closes. And so when you're trying to get your stuff, you know, you're buying from China. And China shuts down. Damn it, go over to India. Okay, we got India working. As soon as we get it working with India, India shuts down and, and China opens. Uh, or Vietnam does. And Vietnam has got a problem. They really can only service, especially up north near China, they can only service smaller ships. They can't service the really big ships. And if you have problems with the feeders getting around, uh, you could get a lot of containers trapped in Vietnam that you just simply can't get out. Same thing in parts of India and other parts of Asia. So when you get away from Japan, Korea, China, the, the normal beaten path where every box has a certain cadence, like it turns six, seven, eight times a year between Asia, say, and North America. But now the boxes go to other places where it takes a long time to bring them back. Uh, you end up needing a lot more boxes to service the volume. So the reason we were, we're looking at ordering so much stuff is we have, we have currently a lot more supply side volatility, and we have a, a surge, a tsunami of consumer spending on retailers' goods. And the combination of those two things is why it makes it look like we are not right-sized for, for to serve world trade. And it's true, as long as we're in coronavirus and we have some crazy government passing trillions of dollars of stimulus, just handing people, you know, how many kids do you have? Three? Okay, so that's five people. You each get 1,500. Here's $7,500, right? What did people do with it? They went and bought all kinds of stuff, 17 fishing rods. That stuff is going to go away. As more and more people can go out and do things, and, and they find that they got a lot of stuff in their house. They may even spend a lot of time on eBay, you know, getting rid of it. Um, I think we'll find that the pattern of equipment movement will become normal again or predictable again. And we won't need all of that extra stuff that we're, we're currently ordering. Now, that's how it looks to me. So I think you'll see a lot of order cancellations or postponements, and they'll spread out the capacity increase over time. But... But let's go to one thing, though, that we haven't talked about. And uh, there are efforts to consider you know, regulating the freight movement industry. And if you go back to that chart that I showed, why would you? You've got an industry whose capacity globally, freight movement capacity, except for air freight, grows at a 3 to 5% pace a year. Uh, you know, everybody's seen alpha liners work. And, you know, they have these nice time series that show growth in container trade and growth in container capacity. And they don't always match up, but, you know, the average rate is somewhere around 3 to 5%. So all of a sudden, you have this surge of 20% of, in, in volumes. There's no way this global industry, much less even in the U.S., could we have ever increased the capacity that much. So yelling at folks who behave rationally and don't overinvest in capacity so they don't get fired or go bankrupt is a really not smart thing to do. So I uh, just wanted to get on my soapbox there for, for a minute. This isn't the right time to try to, you know, come up with things that would be better discussed during normal times. Right. Let's uh, see if we can just squeeze in a couple more questions. But along those lines, to piggyback off of that, 
What about, what do you think about what the Port of Long Beach and LA are trying to do with some new programs to try and implement like close to a 24-7 operation with these, you know, extra night shifts, third shifts into the, you know, wee hours of the night and morning? Um, do you think that's uh, a good uh, process improvement or sustainable? Well, the, the, the Walmart work unless you can get the distribution centers and the warehouses nearby able to get the stuff that they need to get out of there so that the new stuff arriving has a place to go. Because right now, with everybody's warehouse and distribution centers so stuffed that you have companies renting trailers to put in their parking lots to store things, uh, you have companies that held on to the international container sitting on a chassis uh, if you have a truck driver who comes in Sunday night, you know, you know, it's two in the morning, and they pick up a container and they take it to a distribution center. Uh, if the distribution center is closed, I guess you could just drop it there and leave it, uh, you know, as long as there's a guard or something. But otherwise, um, if they're not open, there's not much you can do. You know, you're going to have to go to the DC and sit there until they reopen the, the gates. And and so therefore, as a driver. Why would I go to a, a container terminal to pick up a box that I'm going to be stuck with? So how do we get the shippers? How do we get the shippers to open up their warehouses? The first point of yeah, I think they would if if they actually had room to, you know, to be able to receive more things. But they're so choked. What we really need to help fix the system is the 24/7 the port is doing. But we need to help the distribution centers and the warehouses get everything out of there that needs to get out of there. They're struggling to get truck drivers just like everybody else's. They're struggling to get space on trains just like everybody else's. So if we don't focus on that, that end of the, of, the, of the python, the pig is going to get stuck in the python, and it won't move. Okay, it's just the only way to, that I can think of putting it. But, but there's a second thing that, could, that should be improved too, and that's communication. You know, just, you know, we know that there are, there are times when truck drivers go to the terminals in, in SoCal and, and end up getting nothing all day long. So if there's more communication so we can coordinate things a little bit better, uh, I think we would do a lot better. I, the example I always give is, to get it simple, think of what California has done with digital uh, speed limit signs. You know, they, they built too many on and off ramps too close together, so the traffic you know, is always having to, you always have cars crossing all the lanes to get off on the right side. And just as you get past that, then we have another on-ramp with, with, a, with a bunch of cars trying to get into the traffic. And that's what creates these long tailbacks. And the way to, to prevent them is to make the right-hand lanes move a lot more slowly so cars can get in and off the, the, the highway better and leave the left-hand lanes at a higher speed. But in the middle of the night, it doesn't matter, right? Nobody's out there, really. So you can have all the lanes at the high speed. But So there's transponders in the system, there's communication, and that's how you break up the tailbacks. And because of that, the, the increase in volume of cars and trucks going through the Southern California highways has increased dramatically without having to build any more infrastructure. So if you go to the port and you open it up more time, that's going to help, but you need more communication. You've got to be able to coordinate because... Yeah. Uh, I really said too much. Yeah, no, that's perfect. Uh, I appreciate that. I, I could talk to you all day and, and uh, you know, pick your brain and learn a lot about this, Walter. So, uh, but we have to cut it there. But I really appreciate your time and sharing your expertise with the FreightWaves audience. So thanks again, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. 
All right. Great seeing you, Eric.